in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll be there in just a couple of moments. I want to remind us of where we are right now in this study of the Holy Spirit. We are taking a brief break of our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Acts to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is important because as we're working through the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit showing up again and again and again, empowering and transforming the early church. And so we feel like it's an important opportunity for us to take a brief break and to fill in the gaps a little bit. If we don't understand the Holy Spirit in His person and work, we are diminished in our understanding of God and His fullness. Furthermore, because of the particular ministry of the Spirit to create, to transform, to renew, to testify to Christ, to restore image bearers once again into the image which they were created to reflect, to empower us to proclaim the gospel, and to carry us until the end of redemption, the finality of our adoption, glorification. We will not understand how to walk properly by faith depending upon Him. And so this is essential not only for our heads so that we will understand God properly, but for our faith and for our worship. Last week, my brother Todd was here to talk about their upcoming ministry to the country of France, particularly in Marseille, so we lost a week there in context. And so I'm just going to very briefly remind us of where we were two weeks ago when we began this, and then we will jump into the first few chapters of Luke and see what God's Word has for us today. We are doing kind of a biblical theology. That's a bit of a, an amorphous term. It's, it's hard sometimes to, to put your arms or your hands around it. Even among scholars, they can mean different things by a biblical theology. But the, the basic notion of a biblical theology is that you take a particular subject, and in this case the Holy Spirit, and you progressively from the beginning of the Bible until the end see what the Bible has to say about it in its particular context and then how each context builds upon the last so that when you come to the end from Genesis through Revelation, you have a pretty full-orbed, a well-developed theological understanding of a particular subject, again in this case, the Holy Spirit. And so we began at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And Moses suggests to us in Genesis chapter 1 that at the very beginning, when everything was formless and void and God spoke everything into existence, His Spirit was there to create. And so we saw there that the Spirit is hovering over this sort of formless creation, giving distinctiveness to it. And so we find that the Holy Spirit, though in a veiled way, is the Spirit of power. I'm just going to turn this off here. We find in Genesis 1 that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power 
and creation. All that we see around us from the beginning of Revelation, God manifesting himself to the world, was brought into being, was brought into reality by his spirit. And so this speaks to his great and unfathomable power. He can make something out of nothing. So from the very beginning, God the Trinity is in view, the Spirit in particular, bringing to pass God's creative work. Now this is completely an aside, but I just said to you that the Trinity is in view. We know this from a well-rounded reading of the Bible. Proverbs chapter 8 suggests to us that the wisdom of God, often seen as sort of a literary personification of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was also with God in creation, creating and making. We know this to be the fact from passages like Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus was also very active in creation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all involved in creating. But for our purposes in this study, we understand that the Spirit does many things, including creating. He wasn't just God's creative power. He was also the Spirit of wisdom given to Moses and the elders of Israel, later kings and judges, to rule over God's people so that they could be overseen and led into covenant faithfulness. He was also a spirit of presence and holiness. We know this from passages like Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah suggests that when Israel was making their exodus from Egypt toward the promised land, that the spirit was among them, watching over them and guiding them into holiness. Isaiah mentions that the people of Israel grieved God's spirit there, personifying him, demonstrating his, his real personhood. So who was it that Israel grieved whenever they did not keep God's laws? They grieved God, the Holy Spirit, who was there to propel them and motivate them toward holiness. Furthermore, he is a spirit of power and redemption. For God's covenant people in the Old Testament are sometimes marked by periods of faithfulness, but sadly and tragically and obviously, Again and again, God's people wander from God's covenant and are unfaithful to him. How might this be changed? How might this, this sad truth come undone? Left to itself, and even a covenant people left to itself, how will they turn out? Where will they end up? They will end up far from God. But is this the end of the story? Will the will of humanity, where their bent and propensity toward unfaithfulness, be the final word? We won't take time to go back through these passages, but if you were not with us a couple of weeks ago, you can jot these references down and go back and do some study on your own. In Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, Ezekiel the prophet, under the inspiration of the Spirit, makes it clear that the only way that humanity might be transformed and really obey God is that if something miraculous happens within them, there has to be spirit transformation. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, the Mosaic Law written on tablets of stone stood over the people of Israel, compelling them toward holiness. 
But of course, those tablets of stone could not transform hearts, for they only spoke to hearts of stone. What needed to happen? Hearts of stone needed to be circumcised or replaced with hearts of flesh. And God would do that by his spirit. And so then in chapter 37, after the promise of fleshy hearts indwelt by the spirit is given in chapter 37, God leads Ezekiel out to a valley full of skeletons, of dry bones, kind of a macabre scene. And he tells Ezekiel to prophesy over these skeletons. When he does so, sinews come back to them, joining them together. Flesh is put back upon them, and then the breath of life is breathed into them once again, signifying that the deadness of Israel, kind of like walking zombies, they were alive organically, but dead to God, hearts of stone, not obeying God, characterized generation after generation by unfaithfulness. Despite all the privileges they had, the only way they could pass from death to life is if God would breathe new life into them by his spirit. But this would come through a miraculous person. And it wouldn't be Ezekiel. And that is why in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet says to us, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is the father of David. We know from later on in Israel's history, the kings as well as the people had fallen from grace and it looked like the kingdom was, was dead and gone, that there was no hope for it. But on this dead stump, as we've talked about both recently and at Advent, at this dead stump you see a sprig of life, this branch from the roots of this seemingly dead line, and this branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And later in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah didn't do that. Ezekiel didn't do that. No king did that. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me the servant of the Lord, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He won't just be a prophet, he'll be a king. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. How can broken things be put back together? How can dead people be brought to life? How can lawless people be turned into sons and daughters who delight in obeying God? How can an ethnic people bound to God by covenant promises actually come back to life and be restored? How can the death and darkness and brokenness of this world be undone? As we saw in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, there has to be this thing that we call new birth. Hearts of flesh have to be restored and become hearts. Hearts of stone must become hearts of flesh. And, and the only way to elicit or to draw obedience from these people is if God's spirit breaks in. And we see from Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61 that there, there would be one who would come who would live in the power of the Spirit and then be able to dispense the power of the Spirit as a conduit of grace 
to restore not only God's ethnic covenant people, but bring promise to the world. These ancient promises given to Abraham. That not only would an ethnic people come from him, but through this ethnic people, through the Jews, the world might be blessed. But we know the Jews, we know Israel failed. So what would God do? He would, he would send a better servant. One sent directly from heaven. One who would restore and make all things new. Now, as you are in Luke chapter 1, let me show you how that came to pass. Luke tells the story of a man named Zechariah who had a wife named Elizabeth. They were older. They were barren. She was not able to conceive. And much like in our day, the inability to conceive was tragically difficult emotionally and in this day and age, culturally and socially. This had brought an ache and a sadness into their family. But God had a plan. And he tells this special man, this priest of God, that the barrenness of his wife would not be the final story. So he says to Zechariah that there would come from him and from his wife a child. He says in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. What will be the result? You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. God is going to turn sadness into joy. In verse 15, this miraculous child will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or a strong drink, and he will be filled, notice this, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, the power to create out of nothing. Here in Luke chapter 1, the Spirit takes things that already exist, things that are suffering under the brokenness of the curse, and he's going to break in miraculously and surprisingly and make it new. But he's going to do more than that. Look with me in verse 26. A cousin of Elizabeth, who would bear John the Baptist, is visited by an angel named Gabriel. To a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now notice twice here she's called a virgin. Luke is spelling that out on purpose. He's making it very clear that this woman should not be able at this point to have a child. So the angel, much like an angel came to, to Zechariah, comes and visits Mary. And he says, greetings, verse 28, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Of course, she was greatly scared as we would be. And then in verse 31, it is told to this young virgin named Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary in verse 34 says, how will this be? I am a virgin. She wasn't lying. He knew this. And the angel in verse 35, and I want you to notice this, says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy 
the Son of God. John the Baptist would be important. Seemingly, from conception, he would be born again. That's hard for us to understand, that even before he was born, he was born again. This is not the way God typically works, but seemingly in John the Baptist's case, that was to be. For he was to be a holy forerunner, a prophetic messenger of this greater son, born not just to a barren woman, but to a woman who had never had relations with her husband. So as we've suggested already, the Holy Spirit who made everything out of nothing in Genesis chapter 1 by his great power does something equally miraculous here. Taking things that are broken and inconceivable and bringing life into them. Why is this? Why here at the beginning of Luke's gospel, and Luke alone records these stories in this fashion. Why? Because of all the ache and longing and expectation and brokenness that we saw two weeks ago and that we recapped briefly at the beginning of our time together today. The Spirit who created out of nothing and made all things well created a world that did fall into sin and then existed after Adam and Eve's first sin in brokenness. Despite the fact that at times the Spirit showed up through people like Moses and the elders and Gideon and other judges and kings. God's people, by and large, were not marked by holiness and renewal. They were, by and large, marked by rebellion and going their own way, living under the cursed, wretched darkness of Adam and Eve's sin. And this is why the prophetic messages like Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 and these references that we've read in Isaiah 11 and 42 and 61 are so important. For God is saying that he would have the final word. Sin would not. Rebellion would not. But it would not be by the will of man that restoration would come. It would not be by the the force of nature of humanity seeking to restore itself in some sort of moral rectitude that it would all be made right again. Rebels can't change themselves. Enemies will not throw up the white flag. They will not lay down their arms and weapons against God. They will not of their own accord give up their throne that they have sought to establish for they want to be their own gods. That is the disease of sin that has been passed down to all of us. How can this rebellion be put down? How can this disease be transformed? And how can we be made whole again? It must be by the sovereign action of God. And that's what Luke chapter 1 is proclaiming to us. That the very spirit who gave life in the first place, just as he would promised, would come. But as we suggested in Isaiah's prophecies, these three that we have read, it would come specifically through a person. The new heart that we long for in Ezekiel 36, the the new birth to these dry bones in Ezekiel 37 that we so desperately want and need, it would come through a person, Isaiah suggests. And that is why from the very beginning, this one given to Mary, this one who was a virgin, would be 
conceived by the Spirit. Joseph would be Jesus' stepfather, seemingly a good and righteous man, but he would not be Jesus' actual father. And thus, in giving life to this child, he would be the second Adam, for he would be a real man, but he wouldn't be like Adam. He would be protected from all soil. He would be protected from the disease of sin. He would be protected from all the fallout of Adam and Eve's sin. We find this actually coming to pass later. Look with me, please, in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is presented at the temple. I don't have time to develop all of this today for we would be in this series forever. I've already decided that we need to go a little bit longer than I originally intended for. There's so much that we need to cover if we're going to do this series justice, but we can't be here forever. We need to get back to Acts. I do want to suggest something. In Ezekiel's prophecy, which if we have to admit, as you read Ezekiel's prophecy, it's kind of weird, right? There's like wheels in the sky and and these strange visions that Ezekiel has and stuff, and he's instructed to do weird things with these different objects. It's, it's kind of hard to read sometimes. It's sometimes even more difficult to apply. But Ezekiel does suggest something very significant. One of the, the major things going on in Ezekiel's testimony is that, that God's Spirit, his, his glory, which overshadowed Israel, would be at one point taken away from Israel. It would, it would remove itself from the temple. Most of you know relatively well the story of Old Testament Israel. When God led Israel out of Egypt, he guided them by a cloud and by a pillar of fire by day and by night. It is suggested to us in Exodus that God's very presence overshadowed his people. We could suggest from other passages that that presence that overshadowed God's people and that led them was God the Holy Spirit. This one that we suggested from Isaiah chapter 63, that the people grieved. They grieved him because he was with them. One of the interesting things about Israel is that they had this encampment whenever they would stop. So they would kind of line up in a circle 12 tribes of Israel, and in the middle of the 12 tribes would be this thing that we called the tabernacle. It was a, a temporary tent. In this tent was the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the candlesticks and various things. And in this tent, Moses would go along with the priests, making atonement for the sins of the people and listening to God, particularly Moses. At one point, Moses was so overcome by the presence and power of God that his very face reflected and shone so much that the people were afraid, and so he had to put a veil over his face. God's presence, God's spirit, I think we can say, was in the midst of God's people. But in Ezekiel's prophecy, the spirit of God leaves the later temple, the more permanent structure where God's presence dwelt. For when they went into Israel and eventually made Jerusalem their capital, Solomon, the son of David, built a majestic and holy temple for God where his presence existed. 
But the people fell into such sinful declension, fell away from God, that Ezekiel prophesied that at some point God's spirit would just remove itself from the temple entirely. Why do I go through all that? Ezekiel prophesies that at one time the spirit, the presence of God would return. And subtly, I think that that may be what Luke is telling us here in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. His parents do this to present him to the Lord. In verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he had to be circumcised, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What is this? This is an accomplishment of what Ezekiel said. Because of Israel's sin, God's spirit was removed from their presence. The building, the, the temple itself, and all the adornments inside of it, that was not what made Israel special. What made Israel special is that God dwelt among them, but they fell into such sin that he removed himself from them. But Ezekiel promised that one day the Spirit would come back. God's presence would come back. And that, I believe, is what is going on here in Luke chapter 2. The light is back. The glory is back because Jesus is there. He's an infant. It's veiled. It wasn't what everyone was expecting. But the Spirit and his ministry to Zachariah and Elizabeth and to Mary and now to Jesus and to his parents and to Simeon is bringing the glory back to the people who had fallen away in their sin. Look with me in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40. The story unfolds further. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, this is Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then there's a story told of Jesus when he's 12. This is the only story we know about in Jesus' childhood. You're probably pretty familiar with this. His family goes up to Passover in Jerusalem. And when they are on their way home, they would have likely been in a large cadre of people, a large gathering of people, their own family and their friends from their village. Uh, it would have not been uncommon for them to misplace people along the way for it took a village often for these children to be raised and taken care of. They realize after a while, a day's journey, verse 44, that he isn't with them. And of course, they freak out. You've been through this perhaps if you've been with your child at a department store. When you lose them for like five seconds, you, you freak out. Um, what if you were a 24-hour day's journey away from your child? Especially you moms, you would be heaping guilt upon yourself that you were the worst mothers in the world and so forth. Well, they're freaking out. They go back to Jerusalem, and after three days, right? This is a long time, so they've been away from it like four days now. They find him, and where is he? He's in the temple again. 
He's sitting among the teachers, listening and asking them questions. So he's learning. He's a real man who has to learn. And they were amazed with his answers, verse 47, because he's also God. So they find him. They're astonished, and his mother is cross with him. She says, why have you treated us so, in verse 48? She and her husband Joseph were in great distress. It must have been like to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? Like, he didn't sin here, but she was clearly frustrated. That must have been a very difficult job for her because uh, he never sinned and she did all the time. Verse 49, he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's bringing the glory back to his people. Notice again in verse 52, much like verse 40, Jesus increased in wisdom as a real man and in stature and in favor with God and man. What's going on here? Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, they're being fulfilled. The one who would come and walk in the power and presence of the Spirit would bring glory back to Israel, would bring hope back to this broken covenant people. Now look with me in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist, this one who had been born again before he was born, the one who would be the foreteller of Jesus, who would prepare the way for Jesus, he's prophesying and he's baptizing near the Jordan. Why is he doing that? He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. That despite the sinfulness of humanity, God is going to break in and bring new life. And so this baptism signified that they were willing to repent of their old ways, to go down into the waters, and to be brought back out as new people, identifying with this message of the kingdom. In verse 21 of Luke 3, now when all the people, this doesn't mean all of Israel, but it means all the people who came to John, when all the people who came to John were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then Luke gives a genealogy. He waits until the end of chapter 3, unlike Matthew, who includes it at the beginning of his gospel, and shows that Jesus is the son that everyone has been waiting for. Where Adam failed, Jesus would succeed. And the Spirit now comes upon him, not because he had not been with him before, but he comes down in fullness to signify at the initiation of Jesus' public ministry that he is with him. Questions arise as to why he appears like a dove. Suggestions have been given that perhaps it signified that poor people had to give sacrifices, something as small as a bird. Jesus' parents had to do that back in Luke chapter 2 when they brought him to Simeon. It has been suggested that this perhaps signifies the, the bird that Noah sent out from the ark and landed finally and signified that the waters had receded and judgment was over. Doves hover, maybe suggesting that the spirit back in Genesis chapter 1 who's hovering over the face of the deep, bringing something out of nothingness, is here with Jesus, the spirit of power. The spirit of restoration from judgment. The, the spirit who will send Jesus to be 
an atoning sacrifice. Perhaps some of these images are suggested here when the Spirit comes down like a dove. But nevertheless, this one who brought glory back to the temple and back to Israel more generally is empowered by the Spirit from the beginning of his public ministry to preach the good news of God and to bring restoration out of brokenness. Now look with me in Luke chapter 4. At the very beginning of the chapter, Luke says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after his baptism and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Mark says this a little bit more forcefully in the first chapter of his gospel where he says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. I'm going to suggest to you a book. This is not super light, easy reading. I would say this is kind of medium-high reading. Uh, This is a book that's commonly used in seminary classes for uh, study of the Holy Spirit, but it's not so heavy that people who really want to devote themselves to further reading couldn't really benefit from it. It's called The Holy Spirit, and it's by Sinclair Ferguson. And he's Scottish, so if you've ever heard him preach before, you can try to pretend that you're reading it in his voice. It's a really, really good book. I'm super indebted to it and working through study for this series. The, the, the cost of the book is worth its weight in gold from the way that Sinclair Ferguson talks about this section in Luke chapter 4. And I think he captures the heart of what's going on here. I mentioned to you just a moment ago that Mark says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And if you know the story, of course, Jesus contends with the devil here. And it was for 40 days. And that's not just a throwaway number. That's significant. It's significant because Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And this was a result of their sin, and they failed. The servant of God, Israel, led out of captivity in Egypt, given the promises of Mount Sinai, failed. This external law, which hung over them, they would not and could not keep it. They were failures. And all their posterity, for the most part, they were failures too. But the promise of the the prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, promised that one day restoration is going to come. We've already seen suggested that that it's breaking and it's coming. The glory has come back to the temple in the person of Jesus. This Holy Spirit will rest upon him to, to give him empowerment for his journey and for his teaching, for his ministry of redemption. But before he will really set it off, before he'll begin doing miracles, before he'll start teaching and preaching the good news of the coming kingdom, he has to go in the wilderness. Because he has to succeed where Israel failed. And you know from the story that despite the three temptations that the devil brings his way, despite his vulnerable state where he doesn't eat or drink for 40 days, he succeeds in every way. Where Israel had been tempted to turn away, faithless, they wanted to go back to Egypt, if you remember. And when they had the chance to enter into Canaan, into the promised land, Ten of the twelve spies convinced the people that they can't take it. The God who had led them out of Egypt by signs and wonders and led them through the Red Sea, crushing Pharaoh's army. Who had given them life, who had fed them and given them drink whenever they had nothing to offer on themselves. They couldn't run down to Kroger and get food for themselves or, or go to their water tap and get water. God sustained them every moment. 
And yet they didn't think that they could go into Canaan and succeed, and so then God cursed them by making that generation walk around in the desert for 40 years. But Jesus would not fail like Israel failed. He would succeed because he walked in the fullness of the Spirit. That's a really interesting thing if you think about it. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He was fully God. Fully man, yes, but fully God as well. Why did he have to walk in the Holy Spirit? Because he was a real man. But he's not like Adam, for Adam did not rely upon God's Spirit as he should have, and he fell and plunged the entire race into sin. But the virgin who conceived by the power of the Spirit would bear a different kind of man, one who would walk in the Spirit from his youth through all of his days, and he would succeed where Israel failed. And here's where Ferguson is so rich in this book. He makes the point that Jesus is deliberately, in the power of the Spirit, entering into enemy territory here. He's going into the place where the devil seems to have sway. The broken places, the desolate places, characterizing in many ways the rest of the world. Israel had wandered around in such a desolate place and had fallen again and again and again. But what would happen when the second Israel came? What would happen when the second Adam came? What would happen when the Son of God, fully God, fully man came? He'd walk in the Spirit, trusting fully in this Spirit that had been given to him fully at his baptism, and he would succeed. He would go into enemy territory and he would spoil the devil. You see in verse 13 at the end of this short section, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He left Jesus alone personally until the end when he would enter into Judas Iscariot and sell Jesus into the hands of the Jewish and Roman officials and, of course, be crucified. But ironically, of course, this was his own undoing. This is not the end of the references to the Spirit working in Jesus. Look with me now further into verse 16. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. These were sort of like outposts of the Jewish faith. People lived all over the place in the land of Israel. Didn't all live in Jerusalem, of course, where they could get instruction from the priests. And so synagogues were set up in these various towns, and Nazareth had one. So he goes there on the Sabbath day, this day of rest and worship, and he stands up to read this boy who had been raised here. This boy who had had scandalous things spoken about him and against his mother. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant in verse 20 and sat down. And as you would expect, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and then he says something that would have scandalized and intrigued many. He says in verse 21, Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did God's people need? God's rebellious, broken people. They needed Ezekiel 36. They needed new hearts. They needed God's spirit to come in and accomplish that. To give them not physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision. That they might pass from death to life. To take the skeletons of Ezekiel 37 and put flesh on them and to breathe the breath of life in them that they could walk and worship God once again. How would that come? It would come through a person, a servant of the Lord who walked in the Spirit and then could dispense the Spirit. John the Baptist says this about Jesus. Jesus will baptize, John says, not with water but with Spirit. He will not only walk in the Spirit, he will dispense the Spirit. According to Luke chapter 4, verse 21, in reference to verses 18 and 19, in reference back to Isaiah 61 that we read earlier, who would this servant be? Who would be the one who would bring life? It would be Jesus. Jesus is here by the power of the Spirit making all things new. And if we're going to really understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand him in reference to Jesus. This spirit who made everything out of nothing in Genesis chapter 1. This spirit who is promised to once again bring life into the void, the void of brokenness and sin, conceives a child who would come from on high. He would be from heaven. He would be God's son. He would bring glory back to the temple and back to Israel. He would succeed where Israel failed. And he would not only walk in the power of the Spirit, he would dispense the Spirit. And remember, the Spirit is the one who gives life. So what you find here in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel is that Luke is struck with this notion. That Israel, like the rest of the world, desperately needs to be restored, to be brought back to life. God promised that he would do that in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Ezekiel and others said this would happen. That Israel languished in her sin. She wandered far from God. And every son and daughter of Adam and Eve not just ethnic Jews, but all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, we've all suffered under that curse. But the promise that restoration can come, that rebellion can be put down, that sin can be dealt with, and that we can be brought back to life and worship God, not just for his glory, though that is the supreme purpose in the gospel, that God might be glorified, but also for the joy and restoration of humanity. For humanity will find its deepest joy and satisfaction when it worships God. That's why we were created. How will that happen? It can't happen from laws written on stone. It can't happen through teaching. It can't happen through courses in moral transformation. You can't convince a person by the power of their own strength looking to their own righteousness to make themselves good again. That can't happen. Israel is a beautiful and tragic test case into this. The Old Testament is beautiful and tragic all at the same time. What has to happen? Life has to come down from on high. 
just like it did in Genesis 1. It has to happen again. In this case, God sent his son to be with us, walking and ministering in the power of the Spirit to bring life. Look with me, please, in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. He comes, Jesus does, to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Let's just pause there for a moment. When Jesus came to the world and began his public ministry, demon possession was pretty rampant, showing that the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, held a lot of sway. Darkness was evident. And behold, verse 29, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They knew who he was because he made them, interestingly. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They weren't really expecting him at this point. And then if you know the story, of course, Jesus drives them into this herd of pigs. And then the pigs run over the cliff and die in the sea. Verse 34, behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They weren't prepared for this. They weren't prepared to see light breaking into the darkness. They were so accustomed to it that it was exposing and blinding. You know what that's like whenever you've maybe been in a a dark place and you come out into the full brightness of the sun? It's blinding and it's disorienting and it's uncomfortable at first. That's what Jesus did when he came into the world. He brought blinding light and hope into this broken, dark place. And then look with me, please, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. And a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they have to explain it away. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges, but... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a significant statement of Jesus. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Again, demonstrating the personhood of the Spirit. He is fully God. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We believe in one God who, manif- who exists in three persons, but there is distinction in the persons. Why does Jesus spell this out? Why will blasphemy against the person of the Spirit not be forgiven? Because of what's going on here in this context. What, what's happening for generation? After generation after generation, humanity has lived under the sway of the devil. 
Darkness has pervaded. Brokenness has been the rule. And Jesus, who is conceived by the power of the Spirit and grows up in the nurture and admonition of the Spirit, is baptized by the Spirit and lives by the power of the Spirit and dispenses the Spirit and is putting down evil by the Spirit. If you blaspheme the Spirit and what He is doing in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, according to Jesus, you will not be forgiven for you are willfully denying what God is doing. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Clearly fulfillment of Isaiah and Ezekiel and the rest of the prophets is going on here. Brokenness is being made right. Rebellion is being put down. Darkness is being pushed back. And as Ferguson suggests in the book that I recommended to you today, Jesus is entering into enemy territory. Not just in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness area, but everywhere he goes, he's entering into into enemy territory. And it's interesting because this is God's covenant people. Jesus ministered in the environs of, of, of Israel. That's where he was. And you would think that in, in the span of the globe and the entirety of the world in which Jesus lived, that, that that would be the holy place. But they had neglected the covenant promises. They had, they had wandered from God, even the best of them, even their leaders. Darkness was the norm. Impressive whitewashed tombs on the outside, but inside full of decrepit bones. What had to happen? The Spirit had to come in and push back against the darkness. And Jesus entered into enemy territory under the power of the Spirit to push it back and to bring life that was promised back in the Old Testament. Life to the lifeless, hope to the hopeless, restoration to everything that had been broken. We will continue next week in Jesus' promise of the Spirit, how he will dispense it in fullness, particularly in John's Gospel, in John chapters 13 through 16, if you would like to read ahead. But for today, I I want us to see that the norm in Jesus' day and in our day is, is darkness. A world held under the sway of the evil one. Sinful rebellion. But will that be the final word? And the answer, of course, is no. That's why Jesus came. The Spirit who made all things is now, through Jesus, making all things new. He's done that for you and me. And by way of application, that's one of the first things that I would suggest to you today, is deep, abiding gratitude. You are not sitting here today. You are not embracing these things by faith of your own accord. God sovereignly by his spirit led you to believe these things, led you to confess these things. Deep and abiding gratitude that you and I have passed from death to life because of the spirit. And if you are here today and you have not yet passed from death to life, if you are not yet in the family of God, if you are still seeking to establish your own righteousness, my friend, stop and instead trust Jesus, the one who makes all things new through the Spirit. But not just deep and abiding gratitude that we have passed from death to life, those of us who have trusted Jesus, who died and rose again to give us life. But also the promise that renewal will one day fully come. And so I call you to to wait expectantly. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we look at the ministry of the Spirit in the church. But we are not left to ourselves 
We do not initially make ourselves holy. We cannot progressively make ourselves holy. If Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit to pursue God in righteousness and obey all of his laws and fulfill all righteousness, must not we? So we are compelled here to walk in the Spirit. But we've been given the Spirit as a gift. We, we are not left to ourselves. You cannot produce righteousness in and of yourself. You have been given God's Spirit. So in gratitude, abidingly so, yes. Walk in thankfulness, but, but in faith. That brokenness will not be the final word for you or for me. That restoration until the finality of our salvation, that will be the work of the Spirit in us. And I will say to you, and we'll spell this out in more detail next week, but, but I would say to you that this same Spirit who empowered Jesus and has made us new and empowers us, gives us the responsibility and power to go make this good news known everywhere. Your neighbor, your son or your daughter, your friend, your co-worker, who is yet trapped in darkness, who is seeking to make themselves better through their own moral energy, who seeks to establish their own righteousness by the things that they do well, ignoring the things that condemn them, that they do poorly. Jesus is their only hope, and the Spirit who has indwelt you and gives you power will give you the words to speak to point them to Jesus, who alone can make them new. Again, we will spell that out in more detail in days to come. But as you look at the world around you, which was made out of nothing, the Spirit made that. And as you look at yourself and you see the brokenness around you and in the world all around you, will that be the final word? Will that be the way that it always is? The prophets promised that it wouldn't be that way. And the Spirit came in power, giving life to the God-man, Jesus, empowering him to enter into enemy territory and to spoil the evil one, to put down his rebellion and to bring the light of his kingdom into this world. And this church is a little outpost of that kingdom. And, and you, whenever you disperse from here, are a beacon of light, an ambassador for the king who is making you new through his spirit. How can broken things be made whole? How can life come out of death? God does this sovereignly from heaven by his spirit through the person of his son. We have much to be thankful for. We are not alone. God is doing his work. So may we with gratitude and faith trust and walk in the power of the spirit for the glory of God and for our joy and the good of the world around us that yet rests in darkness and needs the light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray.